0: Hey, this is Josh Schwartz from A Sound of Thunder, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Focus on Metal!
1: Hey, Metalheads, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to yet another week of Focus on Metal. And uh, I put that ID up front this week just to remind myself, to remind you, or at least let you know that uh, once again, my buddies in A Sound of Thunder have uh, hit the Kickstarter trail again for yet another awesome album. So I would urge you to uh, head up to Kickstarter and either look up A Sound of Thunder or you could look up The Crimson Cult. And that is Crimson with a K and Cult with a K. And they're describing this one as a brand new studio album tuned down and featuring vintage tones and gear. And uh, that one definitely speaks to me there with all the vintage gear, because as everybody knows, I am definitely a gear a I don't know, Just I was going to say maniac, but no, it's more I'm a gear addict. So again, do yourself a favor, head up to Kickstarter and check that out and hopefully become a, uh, a part of the bunch of folks out here that are supporting a Sound of Thunder as they continue to uh, push the boundaries of independent bands out there. And I'm also hoping that within the next uh, couple weeks, I can get a schedule thing straightened out. Maybe have uh, Josh come on the show and uh, give us a lowdown on what we can expect. But in the meantime, like I said, go out there, support them. They are an awesome band. The last one was an incredible album with all the symphonic stuff. And I'm hoping that this one is going to be killer as well. So with that out of the way, as I had to go around about to actually remind myself because I got so much on my brain these days. Uh let's get to uh this week's guest. So this week we are digging back into the vaults once again and finally running a uh, interview that we did with journalist and uh sometime legendary guy over in England pete makowski and this guy i mean he joined sounds at the age of 16 a couple years later he was actually on the writing staff doing stuff full-time which is pretty kick-ass and he was doing stuff with you know people like deep purple aerosmith uh ufo like all these classic bands and uh he also has done work actually as a press officer for guys like black sabbath and Hawkwind Motorhead. So a lot of good stuff out there as well. And this is almost even kind of a throwback, oddball connection episode back to our Kerrang! series because for a little while he did do stuff with Kering, and uh, only he wasn't by his own name, he was doing it under Toots Daily, but also he's written for Soundcheck, he's done stuff for Metal Hammer, and for This Is Rock, and also uh, Classic Rock. So this guy's written about a lot of bands, done a lot of work out there, and so this week we're going to roll part one of our two-part stuff with journalist Pete Murkowski. and before we kick it off i just want to apologize up front the audio can be a little bit odd sometimes when you're doing these transatlantic calls and recording you get noise and all that so uh i should try to clean it up as best i could but sometimes it does get a little bit muffled but with that out of the way i'm going to turn it over to richie and pete makowski
0: pete how you doing
2: all right mate can you hear me
0: i can hear you yes i don't know what happened last week
2: don't worry about it, Okay, You know what? It must be doing these interviews. It must be sort of interviewing sort of people in the old folk songs, sort of rock Alzheimer's that sets in.
0: So <laughs>
2: me a, give me a week to sort of like remember things and sort of look up sort of old journals and that.
0: So, Pete, when you got heard by Sounds and you were sixteen years of age, did you have aspirations to write for the magazine?
2: I didn't. I didn't have aspirations to write for the magazine because like, I don't think. I don't think, you know, before the thought of the internet, I don't think people actually see how you get careers in those kind of jobs. But um, when I when it was I was a huge fan of sound, I, mean, I was a big music fan, I read music papers, and so I remember vividly, I remember buying the first issue because they had a post with Hendrix in the middle, and it was when he died. You know, and I was such a fan, me and my friends, we all wore black armbands before he died. he said, but I'm... When I, hit, when I hit 16, before I hit 16, I saw an ad in the Sound Classified looking for a boy Friday, which is like an office boy. And uh, I was playing in a band at the, at the time, and I saw this as a way of getting contact. Um, so I went for an interview with a lovely man called Peter Wilkinson, and uh, he basically told me that I was going to be like an office boy, a dog's body. It's a really new company, and there are plenty of opportunities. You know, what was exciting about sound, it was a breakaway group from a magazine called Melody Maker, which was very established and, like, new music. You know, they went went sort of, like, decades before. And sound is a new magazine. So initially, I sort of started there doing things like wrapping bundles of magazines, dropping them off at local newsstands, getting everyone tea and coffee picking up adverts and scoring drugs for them. Um, and sort got I got in with star and I really had no I love music and in my head, like all of us, I, I had a lot to say about it. But I didn't occur to me that I could be a writer. And what happened, one of the writers there called Ray Telford just one day said, Do you want to go down and see a band called Nazareth, Ray was a Glaswegian, region and Nazareth was Scottish so there might be a connection there so I end up doing a review of Nazareth at the Marquee, and and it, you know I've still got it and it's a very kind of basic review but I look at it and there's a lot of enthusiasm there so yeah, you know, I, I, it's, it's, I probably most of us don't really know exactly what careers we want, I think when I was a kid I wanted to either be a magician or, or something like that or a ventriloquist or a or do a milk round or be a postman or something. So it wasn't it wasn't my aspiration initially, no.
0: Yeah, so when you did the Nazareth show, did you know that they were definitely gonna run the review? Like how how many rewrites did you do on it as well?
2: Oh God. I didn't do I didn't do any rewrites. Um I knew they were gonna run it for some reason. So I, don't, I, don't, I just didn't occur to me that they'd asked me to do it. I think they needed someone to I think to be honest, I don't think anyone else wanted to go. But, but they needed it covered. So I really, as I say, I was so sort of kind of naive and like when, you've got, when you're got that young, I, just, I wrote the whole review out once. I think uh, Ray might have helped with a couple of bits uh, and it came out and, and I was still an office boy so even then it didn't occur to me that I'd end up buying for the magazine but everything after that happened quite quickly sort of within a year. You know, I went from being an office boy to being uh, a, a full-time writer on the magazine.
0: Yeah, can you remember um, the first interview you did? Because there's a big difference to me between doing a, standing in a room and doing a review and actually being asked to go and question people.
2: Yeah, the one of the first, the first interview I've got a feeling was probably one of my it was one of my one of my worst interviews in terms of I interviewed a band called Hall Quinn. Yeah. Yep. Uh, of them, and I went to do the I went to do the interview and they immediately were sort of having digs at me going, Oh, you're a music journalist, you know, you're all cynical, which I thought was strange I was like I think I was just seventeen or I might have been sixteen at the time. You're frustrated musicians, which is true. And they kind of sort of were sort of digging me out and it was um it was uh it, it you know the interview came out okay because obviously I didn't, you know, I just, you know, you want to, you want to get the best, you know, you get, you, I didn't put all those sort of details in, but it, the only thing that the interview became famous for is it's the first time they'd used the word fuck in a music magazine. They got banned from the local news agent, so it's quite a memorable experience.
0: Yeah, Pete, was there a lot of um, sixteen, seventeen-year-old guys doing what you were doing, or were they a lot older in general?
2: There was none. Absolutely. I mean, it, you know, the normal route for journalists at the time was to work, you know, you, did, you worked at a local paper and you did those stories where you sort of go door-knocking and, you know, a relative and saying, you know, tell me about your husband who just died in the car crash and they didn't even know they died. It was all doing sort of like a local fate. There's absolutely no journalist my age. Um, Yeah, because, so, you know, I, I came from literally... Not, no experience in journalism to suddenly becoming a, a writer for sound.
0: Yeah, well, what well, what did it? do you think, looking back now, that they saw in you as a 16-year-old kid? It, it couldn't have been just your love of the music because there was probably loads of 16-year-old kids doing a temp job like that and and they never got a chance to write for any magazine.
2: Well, you know, this is a weird thing, right? It's because, like you say, being, when I was 16, it wasn't particularly cool to be young. And, you know, I've got a son and I think of him like when he was 16, there's no way I would have put them in that environment. There really wasn't anybody looking for jobs like that because, as I say, you know, I was working with some people that were close to my age that were like office boys and that, and it really didn't occur to them. It didn't sort of even... The idea of writing for a, a paper didn't didn't attract them. That sort of came a few years later. There's no one else like me, and what I think one of the two of the things that... Um, helped was that I was really eager for well, three of the things. I was cheap and I was covering a genre of music that nobody else particularly wanted to cover. So I was 16. I guess the youngest person next up was 25. But I don't know if you remember when you were 16. That was a huge gap. You know what I mean? That They might as well have be been 40 or 50 or retired. So I was really what it was was my, I think it was my enthusiasm to do literally anything, you know. That got me
0: there. Yeah, was there a lot of um, was there a lot of editing done when you handed in your early interviews, or did they just run them verbatim?
2: The fantastic thing it sounds was when I wrote stuff. They literally in those days when you wrote anything, they used to say write as much as you want, and they'd pretty much print it all. The only the only thing that was done in my work then was uh, was subbing. You know, because I was I was really crap at grammar and sort of you know all that sort of stuff. So it was kind of sub. Um, and I've looked back on the issues now, and they weren't they weren't sub that well. So the people doing them weren't still professional stuff. But in those days, you could write literally as much as you wanted. And, and all, you know, whereas nowadays, I write stuff, and virtually stuff gets rewritten. I will read stuff and think, I didn't write that. So in those days, there's a lot of freedom to write what you want. And if you look at the issues in those days, especially like the New Musical Express, with, you know, the star writers there, they used to write articles about. Three 4,000 words long and then split into two halves and I remember I did an, I, I did speeches on Deep Purple and every every article was split in half and there was still stuff left over so I, I stuck a thing at the end of the feature going to readers if you want to read stuff that didn't come out I'll sort of photocopy it and send it to you so you're, you're allowed to write as much as
0: you wanted. So, so Pete were Deep Purple the first big band that you interviewed? Deep Purple were not only the first big
2: band I interviewed; they was a f- that was my first trip abroad. I went to see Deep Purple Park Three, which is like Glenn Hughes David Coverdale lineup in Belgium. So that was my first trip. Yeah, it was my first a uh, big band. Yeah,
0: yeah. So how did that all come about? Because you know, you, what were you sixteen or seventeen? Understand? Right. I, I need oh, you to go. Yeah, uh, I need you to go abroad for like what? How long did you go for?
2: I went for two, three days. I'll give you a bit of a backstory to this, because again, as I was saying, I was a journalist covering stuff nobody else wanted. Another big band that I, I had got connected with, but I hadn't interviewed yet, was Emerson Lake and Palmer. And when I was 16, I got offered a trip to America to see Emerson Lake and Palmer, but my editorial director uh, at, the, at the paper put a tieboy boy said no, because they thought I was too young to go there. And the, the funny story about that is that another journalist called Pete Erskine went in my place. He wasn't an Emerson, Lake and Palmer fan. He went to America, but all the way through his trip there, Greg Lake kept calling him Pete Mikovsky. Thought it was me. It was, <laughs> that, that was that was the first trip. That was the first trip. But the, the 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 Deep Purple one, as I say, came along because nobody else wanted to do the feature. You know, it was like for me, I was a massive Deep Purple fan. They were like probably in my top 10 bands close to the top. So it was unbelievable. It was like a dream come true. Imagine you're you're 17, you love rock music, your favourite band's Deep Purple, and you're getting paid to go to Belgium to see them on that. That was their second gig of their European tour that they ever did with that lineup.
0: Yeah, did you have a choice of who you wanted to interview in the band?
2: No, there's no interview. There's no interview arranged. What happened was I went to see the band and because I wasn't, I wasn't savvy to all the protocol that happens with gigs, there was no PR there, after the show, I burst into Richie Blackmore's dressing room, and I vividly remember he was in his underpants pulling his trousers up, and I just sort of like shook his hand and said, you know, it's a really an honor to meet you, blah, 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 you know, I'm a fan of yours. And he was just like looking at me like, who is this guy? And he said to uh, his personal road manager, Ian Broad, who used to play with in the band, he said, Ian... Hey, Take this guy out for the night, and you know, just let him have whatever he wants. And then a couple of weeks after that, he rang me. But when he rang me up, I thought it was one of my friends taking the piss. And as I told him, I went, "Oh fuck off, put the phone down." And then, and then he rang me up again and and invited me to his house to do an interview. So that's how I got my first interview deep cut with sort of
0: with Richie. Yeah, and at that stage were you doing more interviews or more live reviews or were they just was it just all a blur you're doing them all
2: no no so i i I've actually got the back issue somebody lent me and i was doing i was doing interviews live reviews album reviews i did a column at the back of the paper that was sort of like a, a, a musicians column it was called in tune i was just pretty much doing everything, anything that i could
0: yeah so so can you remember what your what band you went to see in the states for the first time
2: but the first time I went to America was Leonard Skinner. Okay, I did yeah. my first time ever there. Yeah,
0: you you have to tell me the story of that with the guns. I, I got I got to get that out of you.
2: That that story is still it's still on, it's been reprinted recently. Rock Candy It's the story that keeps getting reprinted. And the, the, the weird thing, I look back at it now, and it's like sort of post-shock or something. its I can't believe that happened. But I think you know, the great thing about being young is that you kind of do stuff without thinking. But basically, what happened there, um, I'll give you the British version. I, I, I'm thinking about, I was i was 19. That was my first trip. I think I was just 19. Um, and what it was, it was a trip to Nazareth again and in a skinner And I'd never been to America before, obviously. And I got to Los Angeles and I had like about $30 in my pocket, you know, and the, you know, the, the dollar, you know, the pound's was worth even less then. And so I get to this hotel, which is Sunset Marquee, which apparently is the subject of the Eagles Hotel California. It's like a, I'll, I'll give you a good example. It's like the, when I walked in there, it's say out LA it was, before checking me in, the receptionist was just asked me what staff sign I was. I and mean, it was just really weird. And it was like, was only, it was a motel then. It's, it's a legendary hotel. Everybody stays there now. So I get there and I'm looking for the dinner, and I find out that not only have they been banned from the Sunset Marquee, they've been banned from every hotel in Los Angeles, <laughs>
0: sort
2: of uh, causing havoc. So you know, I eventually sort of hook up with the band. The first thing I go to is the place called well, Wars, and like the first thing I see is the, the guitarist, Gary Rossington, had two black eyes when he was on crutches. The other guitarist, Alan Collins, had two black eyes. Um, and and one of them, I think, was going out with Linda Blair, who played The Exorcist. I sort of briefly met them there. And I knew the band. I'd met them before. I was, I was sort of the second person to write about them in England. And I'd met them a few times. They were pretty chaotic when they came to England. But we eventually hooked up with them and we did a we did a festival in Santa Barbara, which was classic because Jefferson Starship played there and this was Grace slick during her alcoholic years and literally she's wearing like statue boots and just collapsed in the mud on the way to the dressing room. And the thing that's vivid about that, we flew in Minna plane, it was exactly it was the same plane they crashed in and it had bullet holes in it. It used to belong to Jerry Lee Lewis. And there's like nobody in nobody in seat belts or anything and Ronnie Van Zandt, who was a bit sort of lubricated, was joking about the plane crashing and stuff like that. So we ended up in a place called Concord, California, which is kind of a redneck area. And uh, they did the gig. And after the gig, we went back to the, like it's a motel, because in those days, a lot of hotels are reticent for letting bands stay in there, especially bands like in the whose reputation preceded them. And the main sort of thrust of the story revolves around me, the bass player Leon Wilkinson, a photographer named Randy Backman, who's no relation to Backman Overdrive, who happened to be a dwarf, which is kind of relevant to the story, and some woman who appeared from nowhere. And the thing is, we, you know, we tried to get in the bar, but because I was under 21, I wasn't allowed to into any of the bars. So we went up to, um, we went up to this like other bar upstairs and got chatting to these, like, biker characters. And it kind of felt a bit dodgy. I mean, one thing we realised, you know, the girl that we were chatting to told us she was sitting on a gun for one of the bikers. But we were getting pretty... I you know, got drunk in the room with Leon, and we kind of realised that they invited us to a party. Uh, and so we ended up getting in a the car. There was me... uh the, there was a guy called Stinky, I remember him. And uh, and this girl, and what struck me, they were bikers, but they were in a car. So it was like they were on their on their night off. But they they, they lured us to go to this party by saying they were chemists and they made speed. So I thought it was going to be a good party, so we started to sort of go there. But we're driving up and we started getting really kind of aggressive. And 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 the 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 dwarf, the photographer, um, was getting really leery. He was sort of sort of screaming out and shouting at and you know, telling him, you know, like, yeah. and and uh, they started threatening to throw him out the window, and the girl that was driving the car for us—they were sort of threatening to kidnap her, and uh, I was sitting in the back. And the weird thing was, because I'd only seen the in film, we didn't see anything real to me. The guy was sort of waving around the gun near my head, and it just didn't occur to me that it was a sort of a gun that was going to go off. And the only thing that saved me with him is that I had a motorhead t shirt on. And uh Motorhead is sort of the slang for speed. That's where Lemmy got the name of the band from. So you know, I was like a bro. I was like, you know, you're, you're alright right, you're a bro. They said calling everyone bros. And they said all it's of all right, they said all right. So they're probably like sort of like on top of like you know, two clutch splan or something. But anyway, <laughs>. we, we got to a garage and they had to they had to get some fuel for their car in a tank, and when they, when they got out of the car, we just drove off really fast, and Leon rang the police up as we were driving down, and, uh, when we got to the, we, we, when we got to the back, we were staying in a motel, so there was, like, entrances all around the place, it wasn't like we were sort of protected, so we changed hotel room, and, uh, we're the police, and, and, I was splitting up with the band, I was heading to San Francisco, they were going somewhere else, and, um, Leon told me later that there was like a whole load of bikers at the airport waiting for them. And the case nearly went to court. Like, I about the following February, I met uh, Leon, and he told me that uh, I nearly had to turn up in a court case. But it was just an unbelievable story, and I happened to be in the middle of it.
0: (laughs) when, When you got back to the UK after that trip, did you question your choice of career at all? That like, you know, you could no, have ended you know up what? dead.
2: I didn't question any of it. So maybe like uh, like a like maybe a couple of years. Like when when sort of Skinner died or sort of you know, I told people about it later because it seemed like a sort of uh it was like a movie. It really didn't sort of uh, you know, to me it was a great story. Like when I came back, I remember I wrote it all in those days. I never used to take notes, or just a few notes and that, but I had a really, really good memory. And to me, it was just a really good story. And it was a front cover. So the cover said, Hanging around the spinners can get you shot, you know. So it was a looking back now. I don't think anything like that could happen today, primarily because it'd be just sort of like, you know, questions from so many levels, you know. I, I don't think they would have let. You know, I don't think I don't think they would have let some of my age out there. You know, I don't think. You know, I this question that, but I just think that even now it doesn't sort of seem real. And if, if it happened to me now, I, I wouldn't have got as far as going in the car with them, the people. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, you were just um, back then. You were just a little bit naive.
2: Do you know what? I, 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 would say it was, I was just young. You know what I mean? It's like an adventure. It's like transpose it. If I was out with some friends and the same thing happened. I would have thought he been shaking, but I was like, was it in a It just felt like nothing's going to happen to me. This is, yeah, naive, yeah.
0: Yeah. So, Pete, have you ever, you've interviewed Jimmy Page. Um, yes. When you interviewed him the first time, what's the one thing you wanted to know about him? The
2: one thing I wanted to know about him. Um, when I interviewed him, I, I wanted to know about the album. He did this album called Lucifer Rising. With uh, Kenneth Anger, I wanted to know the whole story about how that came about. It, uh, it's a really fascinating story because he he kind of wrote that when he was um, when they were doing those gigs that were in the song remains the same. I was I was far more interested in Jimmy's stuff outside of Zeppelin because Zeppelin are very well documented. So you know I was uh, I was far more interest, interested in all the sort of myths and the stories and that, that was the big thing I wanted to find out how 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 he ended up doing this sort of like really weird kind of dark album.
0: Yeah did did you have any dealings at all with uh, Peter Grant?
2: No, I think funny enough, I almost wrote a biography on him, and this was like during his wilderness years because there was somebody that worked for Zeppelin with Left, and they they were going to they were going to provide me. It wasn't going to be an interview with Grant, but it's going to be all the people that do it. And I'll be quite honest, I'm really glad I didn't. The only time I have met Peter Grant is when I saw Zeppelin at Olds Court. I went to the toilet, and next door I could hear all these shenanigans going on, and Peter Grant came out of the toilet with Robert Plant, sort of like, and they were sniffing loudly. So That's my only sort of recollection of sort of, you know, seeing him
0: yeah. in the flesh. Yeah, and what, what, about, um, what about the members of Queen? Would you have interviewed them in the 70s?
2: I didn't I did interview Queen, but again I was sort of one of the I reviewed their albums and I saw them I saw them play and I and I met Brian May very early on because he was a big fan of a band that I was into at the time called Stray Dog. And the guy in Stray Dog used all these effects and Brian was really curious about them. It was before that while they were recording their first album and he ended up using those effects. But um Queen were one of those bands that the other journalists liked, because they were quite flamboyant and there was a sort of story there. So I reviewed their albums, saw them live, but never, never met them with it. Oh, no, right. I interviewed Roger Taylor when he had his solo album out, but that kind of wasn't quite as exciting as interviewing Queen.
0: Yeah. So do you think in, in general, in the beginning, when you were working for Sounds, was there, was there a, a snobbishness with the magazine when it came to rock music that a lot of the writers thought that rock music in general was beneath them?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. You know, you know, I think everybody that wrote for Sounds at a time probably would have preferred. To be, they was you know, their aspiration to be to write for the NME, and Sounds is very. It covered a whole, a whole sort of eclectic kind of music, but it kind of veered on to so a lot of the stuff they did was stuff that came out on Virgin, like Can, Robert Wyatt was a big one, Traffic, and all these people. So. They were really quite happy, me doing all the heavy rock stuff. And then when Jeff Barton came along, and I found, with the exception of Quinn, I got positive reaction from other musicians, but I really kind of got looked down on by other journalists. I think one reason was because I didn't do the trial of passage working for local papers. And the other reason was they thought it was like, you know, they looked at, you know, sort of... uh, the band I was writing about the, to the equivalent of the difference between cricket and sort of American wrestling, if you know what I mean. They just yeah. didn't take it seriously.
0: Yeah. C- can you remember the first musician who remembered who you were? Your name was able to say hi, Pete. Nice to meet you again. I,
2: I, I, mean, I remember the first musician that was that was you know pleased to me. Yeah, Paul up without a doubt. Long before I wrote about him, when I met him, he knew who I was. He read my album reviews and I remember particularly because I did an interview of um, a Frank Zappa album and in, in the album review my dad sort of stuck his head I was living at home so I stuck his head in the door and he's saying who's that and I thought it was Frank Zappa and my dad just went oh he's getting on a bit and Phil thought that was hilarious so we sort of connected and obviously yeah no Phil Phil was, was the first person that I met I was like, oh wow well, you know he Possibly knew me and that, yeah. which was quite flattering because he was one of, another one of my heroes. I used to listen before, you know, when I was in my teens uh, on Pirate Radio, Whiskey in the Jar.
0: Yeah. Do, do you think after a while that you got worried that um, they were asking for you to do the interviews rather than you being offered I, them?
2: I, I got, I mean, pretty much, you know, sort of Deep Purple with the band, you know, because the, I didn't deal with PRs and stuff like that. They dealt directly with me. And um, in terms of yeah yeah a lot of heavy rock bands were quite happy that I was doing the interviews and it wasn't so much the musicians asked for me but the editor at the magazine pretty much directed all that stuff and if anything came up that he thought that I would like and to be honest that got that was great but in another way it was quite restricted because I like writing about other kinds of bands you know um, so. In that way, you know, you know, I did get to write about loads of other bands, but, you know, just the fact that I liked Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, say Budge and that, didn't it showed me I liked every heavy rock band? Yeah. Like, Hi, this is Glenn Hughes, and you're listening to Focus
0: on Metal. Did you ever get to um, interview Tommy Boland?
2: No, and you know what? That is you know, such a regret. I met him, I met him when he, you know, I was a huge fan of his. I reviewed the album, his albums when they came out, when he played for the James Gang. Massive hero. And here's the thing, here's the strange thing, is that um, Richie Blackwell was a massive fan of his. And and when I when I went to do Rainbow in Japan was when he died and we got word of it. And uh, he was really upset about that. And the only time I ever met Tommy Bowling was when, he Purple did this gig at Wembley and it was tragic because the audience were just booing Bowling all the way through and I met him afterwards and he was so out of it, he was almost green. It's like then was introduced me to him and it just didn't register. But he's one of the people that I would have loved to interview.
0: Yeah. Now, now, after a few years working for Sounds, you went the other route and you did the PR route. What, what made you go there?
2: Okay, I'll tell you what happened. And it's basically it's a total accident. What happened was there was this dispute at Sounds. Like, Sounds got into a dispute with the editorial, and with the, the people that ran it, the directors, and they went on strike. And when they did that, the editors brought out their own version of Sounds, which was absolute disaster. So this core core of journalists that I kind of got raised with, you know, I grew up with, went to form their own magazine. And I thought, oh great. So I. You know, the, the actual editors, uh, one of the directors down really wanted me to stay and was going to give me a really good job. But I was kind of militant and not caring about anything. I said, Oh, I'm going with these guys. And they never gave me the job at the other paper. And I think it was because it was kind of more highbrow. And that it was quite, it actually quite really upset me at the time. So, I, you know, i left the magazine. And there was a guy from a company called Heavy Publicity called Richard Ogden. And I'd I, I reviewed a lot, a lot of the band that I liked, like Black Oak, Arkansas, and stuff like that. And he liked me, so um, I, I sort of joined them. And the funny thing was, when I joined them, we were supposed to do the New York Dolls. And the week that I joined, the, the drummer from the New York Dolls died, and it was sort of like... Oh, it was, it was a really good. We shared an office with a guy called Doug Smith, who managed uh, Lemmy, Hawkwind, Mann, people like that. But he also was involved in merchandise with so all the massive bands like Rush and everything like that. So it's quite an interesting, chaotic office, like where Lemmy used to come in all the time. That's where Lemmy got his nickname from. It was like Lemmy a quid till Friday. He sort of made money for selling those t-shirts. But it was like close to an area called Labrador Road, which is really bad. But I totally got in it by accident. Absolutely. didn't occur to me to do that job.
0: Yeah. Now, now, how long did you do it for, Pete?
2: I did it for a couple of years.
0: Okay. Who um, was who was the most difficult band or musician that you did PR for that just didn't want to do any of the interviews or were reluctant to do a- anything, you asked them, really?
2: I would say the most difficult band was, and i bring their name up again, is Hawkwind. Because all these bands were like underground bands. They were like the people's bands. They all wanted to be the Rolling Stones. And by the time I started working there with Hawkwind, they're literally... Joined the PR company when Lemmy got fired, is that they were just kind of falling apart and they hated each other and they really weren't interested. All the bands actually weren't were, were interested in the press because they'd never got any love from the press. So I'd say Hawkwind Man and the Pink Fairies were the difficult ones to, to deal with. It was all sort of hippie bands, so called hippie bands.
0: Yeah. So, so tell me about working PR for Black Sabbath.
2: Oh, gosh, yeah, I forgot that. Yeah, I did. Well, what we did. We worked for a company called WWA, which is Worldwide Music, It's a story in itself, and what it was. So I did like Black Sabbath, uh, Stray and dogs and it was run by a guy called uh, Wilf Pine, who had sort of love on one, one on one hand, and hate on the other. And he's famous for apparently he was the only English person ever allowed to join the Mafia. The SS slot is his biography. So that gives you sort of an indication. When well, I worked with Sabbath, um, they weren't in good shape at that time. It was sort of about, it was before Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath came out. I mean, Ozzy, Ozzy was an absolute fucking nightmare in those days. He was he was, at, he was off, out of control, you know, and, and he's sort of making hell, uh, making life hell for the rest of the band. Um, so for me, it was incredibly exciting because i but there was a kind of a darkness around them at the time, um, and I'm sure Mick like, Ward inherits them after me, so he's probably got some great stories as well. But yep. people Tony Iommi, Geezer, still was are absolutely fantastic. Ozzy was a total nightmare, which is which is you know saying you know, now he's, he's a very sort of lovable character, but in those days it, it was it was a nightmare, and 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 they were going through loads of legal crap as well.
0: Yeah. H- had you interviewed the Sabbath guys for sounds before you worked PR for them?
2: Um, no, but they were a band that they were a band that knew who I was. I mean, I think I got that job with Richard Ogden basically because by then I had a reputation as a music journalist. So a lot of the bands that he had knew who I was and that sort of worked in my favour. I interviewed them I interviewed them after after I did the PR when a uh, Sabbath study Sabbath came out, I did an interview
0: with them. Yeah, that that must have, um, that must have been a little bit awkward, because you're on one, you're 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 behind the curtain with them working for them, I know you're interviewing yeah. them for a magazine.
2: It wasn't it was a problem at all because again it worked in my favour. Tony and that knew me and, and all those fans kind of trusted me, so it, I think they were quite happy when I came to interview them. To be honest, yeah, there no kind of there was no kind of like you're on that side of the fence. Because the thing is, uh, when you're doing PR. When you're a journalist, you kind of, unless you get to know bands well, you see a superficial sort of thing, like with the bands. There's a lot of stuff you don't know that goes on. And when you're a PR, uh, because they knew me as a journalist, I like them, but you get to feel the nitty gritty stuff that goes on behind the curtain. They kind of, I think they knew me and kind of trusted me more even then.
0: Yeah, you, you kind of knew, Pete, what questions to ask them that. 99% of the other people wouldn't because you'd done that side of it.
2: Well, I also, I knew, because I was a fan, I could go quite deep into the album and stuff like that. Obviously, I wouldn't ask them about the court cases and all that crap that was going on. So, yeah, you're right. I was quite, quite sensitive to all that. And it's something that I try to be as, as a journalist anyway. You know, I think, there's, I think there's areas that you don't go into and areas that you go into, you know,
0: yeah. Now, how did you get back into the, the magazine writing? Did you completely stop doing the PR thing and go back to that, or did you try and juggle both of them? I stopped.
2: No, I stopped doing the PR because, in the end, what happened was it, it kind of it wasn't working for me, and uh, and uh, the guy who ran the PR company kind of moved on from there. And I really, it's one of those jobs, I only would have done it in those circumstances. I got back into writing; it wasn't a problem because I kind of did a bit of writing while I was a PR. And obviously, you know, being a PR, I kept in touch with all the magazines. So it, the, the, the transition wasn't difficult.
0: So back then, what, what, do you think most of your interviews were done in person? At either you met them in a hotel or you, or you went on the road with them, or was there a lot of phone interviews as well?
2: Very weird. The only phone interviews we used to do then was with bands in, in America. You know, they American bands. The reason that was in those days, as I found out in America, the 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 PR and record companies really weren't interested in England. You know, so the the value of having an article in an English paper because all the bands in America were like coining it big time, making loads of money, you know. So, you know, they they might do like Europe as an afterthought, but they really, you you couldn't get them to do that. It was only later on that America sort of, you know, lockdown started going into America. So those are the only interviews I do by phone. The majority of interviews I'd either do it, so musicians' houses or go on the road for a few days' rhythm. And very occasionally would I do sort of, you know, smaller bands, you do a face-to-face at the PR's office and that. But it was more, kind of more of a social thing. Because what you've got remember, in those days, when I worked for sound, really, you know, and, and even like, you know, if you look at Chris Welch, who was a writer before my time, Melody Maker, you read the stuff, it'd be like, Jimi Hendrix would pop over to visit him for a coffee and play him a track from the album. And we were kind of the aftermath of that, is that we'd spend all day in the office, but bands would come and visit us in the office. Then afterwards, we'd go to the marquee, and bands would be at the marquee. And after that, we'd go to the 15th Club for the Speakeasy, you know, where all the road and bands went. So we, there was a kind of a social thing with bands and PRs. We could sort of, like, over a drink, go, oh, can we do, you know, what, what have you got happening? Can I do an interview of so-and-so? And that's how a lot of those interviews sort of transpired. There was there was very little cold calling sort of PRs trying to sell us fans.
0: Yeah, Pete, P- can you remember some of the road trips that were really memorable for you? I'd not 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 that you just met your heroes, but maybe something happened on it that was that stands out for you that that you, you'd never forget about. i talking. I'm not. I don't mean like the Leonard Skinner thing. Now,
2: <laughs> no, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, let me just let me just think for a second, give me a couple of seconds. Okay, um there's there's loads of them. I think there's I'll give an example of I went with girls' school to Marseille and um we were walking around the streets then. so it's me and girls school and this guy attacked me and like somebody we found out at the end that these people, these girls were sort of shouting out, the guy attacked me, they thought that I was a pimp and I brought some new girls into Marseille. That was quite entertaining. Um let me think. Uh, da, 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 da. I did. Uh, oh my god! Yeah. Okay. I, I I took Mescaline with 38 Special on a coach which is in Utah, which is really unusual. And I, I sort of told them about some story, like you know, I think my ex-wife or someone got attacked, and they were sort of getting into a lynch squad together to come to England and sort of sort that out. That was a that was the wrong band to take psychedelic drugs with. I tell you, know yeah. That was quite scary. I ended up in the cells with Richie Blackmore. We got, after he did a gig at Hammersmith, we got pulled for speeding. He got pulled for speeding. And we ended up in, a, in, a, in like, uh, cells in uh, Hammersmith Police Station. Um, another one, which was Nina related but it's not Linus it was um, I, I, I did an interview with a bass player from the Southern Rock Band called the Atlanta Rhythm Section. And halfway through it, he starts having a breakdown and, and, and starts going on about he wants to kill the drummer. And next thing, he's kind of looking for a gun in his room, and he's sort of on his way out to shoot the drummer. Uh, so that's another sort of a little incident that we've had. I nearly got beaten up with Leonard Skinner, uh, with Def Leppard. We played in the sort of uh, redneck part of Texas, and we went to a bar afterwards, and it was a real sort of, this is like, you know, early 80s, real sort of redneck bar. And, um, and so the band come in preening in their sort of like spandex and ballet shoes and perms and everything. And obviously the barmaids got really interested in the band and it ended up with these two guys having a fight to decide who is going to beat us up first. And he sort of got out of the place then. So, yeah, there's quite, quite a lot of sort of little incidents like that.
0: <laughs> you know, you, you go out with the band and y- you have to mingle with them a lot. But you're looking at yeah. them and you're, you're, you're kind of thinking, I'm kind of quite what you're drinking here and what you're taking. Did, did your journalistic hat yeah. go on at all and say, you know, I have to be a little bit objective here and stay back a bit, or is it like, fuck it, if you can't beat them, join them?
2: In the early days, look, I'll tell you, when I did my first live review of Nazareth, I mean, I was living at home. I was 16. I was earning £9 a week which even then wasn't, you know, it's not a lot. Even then it wasn't a lot. And I went with my best friend, Henry, went to the Marquis and got introduced to the guy who ran the Marquis, Jack Barry, a rampant gay, like, uh, maverick, who introduced himself to me as, like, being the Queen of England, which I didn't know what that meant. But we got absolutely ratted. And I remember I got home. My mum opened the door, and I just threw up on her shoes. So I'd say the first few years, I kind of didn't. I didn't have that professional stance. I mean, I've got you know when I met. I remember when I, when I did my first interview in the Skinner. Not first interview, but I met up with him at a gig in the Skinner. The following year, the uh, the the pianist Billy Powell produced these photos of me passed out over the table when I'm meant doing an interview. I remember I did an interview with Golden Earring, and I drank myself sober. I did the whole interview in blackout. Um, uh, I did uh, no, I pretty much got. I did an interview with Phil Lynner. that's a classic one, and it was a huge story I was writing on Thin Lizzy. Massive. It was like the history of Thin Lizzy, and he gave me a line of some powder, and I thought, oh, it must be speed or something. Took it. It was heroin, and I never turned my tape recorder on. I came home with a blank face. i they know my attitude wasn't very professional at the beginning. Um, it kind of, I sobered up sort of in later years. But, however, I always kind of got the interviews done and delivered the story. But pretty much all the journalists I met ever were like borderline alcoholics.
0: Yeah, I kind of got that, impre- I got that impression a lot from talking to them. It's like... And,
2: and, and the other thing is, Rich, what you've got to remember, when I started writing... Not only me, nobody in the music business, all the bands you met thought that this was gonna last longer than a year. Everybody thought any minute now we're gonna lose this and we're gonna end up working in factories. So people were really fatalistic. I mean, every night was a party. Um, you know, like you know, me and all the other musicians I knew in the seventies and eighties saved the memorabilia we you know, we could be, be sort of loaded now. But nobody thought of this as a career. And that probably answers the question of why there weren't a lot of people applying for jobs either.
0: Yeah. Pete, do you ever remember being on the road with a band and their career just blew up literally overnight and they didn't know how to handle it?
2: Absolutely. I see the classic thing I did was more, more recently I was saying suit in the noughties, they call it. I did, I did a big feature on Aerosmith and, uh, it started, off, it started off, me and Ross went on the road with Joe Perry, and this was around the time when Steve Tyler started drinking again. He'd fallen off a stage at a gig, and they had to cancel, like a whole uh, South American tour. So I was on the road with Joe Perry, and he started talking about, like, you know, they might have to reform Aerosmith with a different singer. And I thought, this sounds interesting. So, yeah, you know, sort of interviewing like on that. So me and Ross said, let's stick on this story. like so. We ended up. I ended up going with Aerosmith uh, to Saudi Arabia, and uh, they did a gig at the Grand Prix there. And I interviewed all the members of the band, and basically they were really sort of laying into Steve Tyler and sort of you know, going, they basically looked like the end of Aerosmith. And this was like on the on the eve. I think it was the 40th anniversary that year, and they didn't even have a clue. Yeah, that was happening. So I spoke to all the members of the band, and then I spoke to Steve Perry. There was a, a, a Steve Tyler. Sorry, it was in a dressing room about a mile away, i to go by Gold cart from the rest of the band, and it was completely zonk. And what happened in the interview was he sort of said, "I said, what are you going to do now, Steve?" And he goes, "I'm going to have to sort of push myself, you know, do other things, do my own thing." And I said, "What, like Brand Tyler?" And he went, "Yeah." And the weird thing was that he was quoted as saying, "From now on, I'm Brand Tyler." And this, that, that. Phrase, I kind of traveled all over the world. It was like in daily papers. In fact, I went to Los Angeles like a week, a month after the art came out, and I was, I was at some doing this. Woman Oh, this is the guy who interviewed Steve Tyler, about brand Tyler. And basically, the whole thing went into meltdown because the press, the the PR, the manager, obviously didn't want to see me to see the band that vulnerable. And what happened immediately was all the members that told me they were sick of Tyler, you know, they had enough of him, the drummer who said, like, he went into rehab and he had, like, this sort of, like, his, ty- his problems with Tyler was, like, going back to, his, you know, his family. or was all, all family stuff and everything. They all denied they said that. But the thing is, is that I do not write any, any quotes in the paper unless I got them on the paper machine. The outcome of that was just strange because a year later, I saw Aerosmith at uh, Wembley. And Steve kind of pulled me up, and I thought, oh, my God, because I said something detrimental about this woman. I didn't say anything detrimental, as she was being quite lascivious with me and someone else. And then she died, but he pulled me up, and said, can I speak to you for a sec? And he took me outside, and he just said, Pete, I'm really sorry. Like, when you interviewed me the last time, I was off my head, I apologized to you. And I was like, Steve, I can't tell if you're, if you're sort of head or normal, because you're pretty sort of crazy all the time. But that the outcome of that was like, Basically, the management, the PR, nobody was happy with me when that story came out. But that's the great thing, when you go on the road with a band and you get that kind of access to them. Yeah. And also, I'll I'll just do one more thing. I was in in Japan with Rainbow, and uh, the night before the end of the tour, Richie pulled me up, and he thought, so look, you know, go out and take Jimmy Bain for some drinks, because I'm going to fire him tomorrow. So that was quite an awkward situation as
0: well you see that that's 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 one of the things I wanted to ask you um, yeah. you can get too close to the band Like he, he's putting you in a very awkward situation there to bring Jimmy Bain out now of course Jimmy was no no. you know Jimmy liked to drink and he liked everything else but yeah. you know it, how friendly do you want to get with these guys to put because they're putting you in a very awkward situation there
2: uh, absolutely Rich I agree I mean the thing with Rich if you're, if you're at the time there was that kind of... And I totally agree with you in retrospect now, but at the time, you know, I knew Jimmy well, and he, he was kind of... I think he was coming from a, a good place, and just take him out for a good night. But, you know, that situation, I felt really awkward because I never told Jimmy that I knew he was going to get fired, and I think he kind of knew, but I, I interviewed him more recently, and I never mentioned it, and he sort of died since then. I think you're right. The problem with music journalism is The difference between music journalism and writing for papers and magazines is like, I will do an interview, say, with Jimmy Page and I write for the Times. That will be the only time I ever meet him. The only time I'll have a connection, I'll be moving on from there. But when you're a music journalist, you have to cultivate relationships all the time. And the difficulty comes in is when they do things that you don't like or they produce, more importantly, they produce music that you don't like, and that has worked, that has been awkward for me obviously, because you know, at the end of the day that's what they do for a living, and, and I write for a living, and yeah, it, it can be awkward, and I, I'll be quite honest, I think, you know something a friend of mine said he always used to say as a banter before I went to an interview, he said, Pete they're not your friends you know, ultimately they're just interested in themselves, and I try and tease that But the other side of me is like, you know, I'm a fan. At the core of my gut, I'm a fan, and it's really hard for me to separate the two, but I do try and do that, yeah.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned there that Stephen Tyler apologized about an interview he did with you previously. Did any other musician ever apologize to you about a previous interview?
2: Um, Let me think. I would say no. (laughs) Absolutely not, no. Okay. Uh, I can't I'll ever recall. Um, you know, I think it's that. It's like did any other musician sort of have a go about something that I've written? It's happened a couple of times, but it's it, you know it's nothing that I've taken too seriously. But um, I would say no. It's very. I was very taken aback when Tyler did that. Yeah.
0: Now you said you'd interview Jimmy Bain there and Richie and Rainbow. Um, you must have interviewed Ronnie mm-hmm. James Deal.
2: Oh yeah. I. Yeah, I knew Ronnie, I knew Ronnie uh, before he joined Rainbow. He was a band called Elf. And basically, I think what Richie was, when Richie recorded his first Rainbow album, none of the per- band, Purple, knew what he was up to. So we were all staying at the same hotel. It was called the Arabella Hilton in Munich. And in the in the basement around there was the Musicland Studios where uh, Queen Rolling Stones had recorded. And that that was was in a really awkward position then because Ronnie, who was in a band called Elf that supported Rainbow, Richie loved him as a singer. So he started producing this solo album and halfway through it, he goes to me, Pete, I'm going to leave the band. And I ended up taking the artwork cover for the album. And again, it's almost like a Jimmy Bain situation. I knew Richie was leaving Purple before Purple had a clue what was going on. But Ronnie, when I met him, Straight away, what I liked about Ronnie because Richie's quite a forceful character. He's a huge character, he's like Jimmy Page. But Ronnie was a veteran. He'd been, a, I mean, he, he sang in doo wop bands sort of in the '60s, so he was a veteran. He didn't take any shit off Richie. and he, he had a very kind of uh, well-defined idea of who he was, you know. So he was. He, I loved Ronnie Dio a lot. I thought, I thought he was a wonderful person, incredibly talented too.
0: Yeah. Now, Pete, you mentioned you interviewed Jimmy Page. Did you ever interview John Barnum?
2: No. No. I never saw him, never interviewed him. Kind of Zeppelin. What was strange, Zeppelin was one of those bands that all the other journalists would would like fight to get interviews with. So I ne- I never got near him. I just I saw him once again at that Els Court gig probably coming out the toilet as well. That's you know, <laughs> they played Els Court. For some reason they let me they let me review the band then, but that's the only time then that I had any sort of connection with him.
0: Yeah, and when was the first time you interviewed Robert Plant?
2: Me, I've never interviewed. The only person I've interviewed in Zeppelin is Jimmy Page.
0: Okay, so who who in sounds would have interviewed Robert Plant? Because you, you figure if with a magazine like that, they would, he would have been offered.
2: Absolutely. In the old days, there was a girl called Penny Valentine, and later on, there was a, a lady called Barbara Sharone, There's a huge press officer now. She kind of did all that area. She, did, she, she would have done Robert Plant, yeah.
0: Okay. So, to be
2: quite honest, if I'll be honest with you, Jimmy Page is the only person I really would have wanted to interview, you know what I mean? To me, he was, he was like, I love guitarists for one thing, but he, to me, he was like the core, the creative core of Led Zeppelin.
0: Yeah, yeah. So before I leave you go, Pete, for part one, there's a band that I love, being from Ireland and England, you're well aware of them, and over in the States here, not so much. Did you ever interview any of the guys in status quo? Oh,
2: yeah. I guess. Status quo are the classic example of a band no one else is interested in except me. And I've interviewed all of them. I mean, I, I went on the road with them. I, I, sort of, I, I, I sort of did the first gig with them. People don't realize, Status Crow the equivalent of like, to me, the closest thing I'd say that came after that was Oasis, where the audience were like as important as the band. I mean, you go to the venue and literally the whole venue would like kind of been shaking. So again, I was a Status quo fan since pictures of Matchstick then. band. So I interviewed, I interviewed all of them Francis Rossi what was interesting I'll give you a great interesting status quo story is that they didn't wear denim off stage and I went backstage and there'd be like there'd be like these rails and rails of sort of tailored denim and that that they sort of put on for the gig but they were quite they were quite sort of mod they were really fashionable like off stage they weren't sort of like they looked on stage but um Francis Rossi they were a great great band to interview.
0: yeah because Rick Parfitt Definitely came across as a, a larger-than-life character.
2: Absolutely. I mean, the thing about that band was they like they used to smoke like and I never not I remember pictures. They they used to smoke dope backstage. But what it was, they they put hash oil on number six cigarettes, which is like a real working man cigarette. So when they did that, and they did they did enjoy to have a laugh. And I say, Rick Parfitt was kind of like. In the early days, before he joined Kuo, he he's heading off in a sort of like a, a pop idol direction. He's a very good-looking guy, very charismatic. Before he joined joined close so he was kind of he was kind of like the K.K. Downing of Status Quo. If you know what I mean? He just sort of was like a, 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 a law unto himself. Whereas uh, Francis Rossi is incredibly intelligent and incredibly sort of like you know he's he got a lot of depth to him. Was more like he had that image of sort of head down, no onto his boogie. Yeah.
0: What about um? What about Alan Lancaster?
2: <laughs> yeah, he's, I love uh, Alan Lancaster. Was great. I love John Cogler and Alan. They kind of like when they did when you did interviews, they sort of, they kept in the background, but socially they were really really nice people. You know, to me it was hard. It's, it's hard listening to Quo without without the original lineup. So just very sort of down to earth. They loved. To sort of party after the gigs and that. They could hold a drink and that and, and have a laugh but they're just really, really nice, nice people.
0: Yeah. So, so Pete, can I wrap this one up and we'll, we'll schedule another yeah, sure. one? Brilliant, thanks. Pete.
2: Well, have a good week anyway I'll speak to you Thursday. Yeah,
0: all right, bye. Pete. Thanks a million.
1: Okay, bye. And as promised, Pete did contact Richie ...on the next Thursday, and they had another big, long interview. It got interrupted about, I don't know, 17, 18 minutes in with some kind of phone weirdness, but they get it all straightened out and kept on going. But with that much audio, I just thought it was better to just split it off into two weeks, that way there, like I said, as much as possible, especially for our radio partners that have like an hour format. I want to get get as much of it as I can into an episode and not go past that. And this was a good opportunity to do that. It was basically a shit-ass dumb luck split right here at just under an hour. And they picked it up again on Thursday. So more good stuff as Richie keeps digging into the uh the past life of Pete Mikowski and all of the stuff he did. And, I mean, can you imagine that though, starting at 16 and by 18 you're a full-time staff writer on Sounds, which at that point was the, you know, one of the hottest music trades going. Uh just I mean, that's just an amazing amazing story. And so obviously that's probably what we're going to do next week is going to be run part 2 of this. So, uh, hey, for once I actually have half an idea about what potentially we're doing next week. Uh, breaking new ground here on focus on metal. And again, just a reminder: definitely go up to Kickstarter and check out the uh, Sound of Thunder Crimson Cult program. Good stuff there. Still some good, some good bundles up there to try to get into and support them. They are definitely an awesome band. And you know, one of the things is actually to get their whole discography, the whole thing. As uh, as part of the your pledge, and if you're not uh, really haven't gotten much of sound of thunder, or you really want to try to get into them. There is an awesome key way to get into the band right there. One fell swoop, be a supporter and get all of that good stuff as well. And I just want to throw in one other plug this week and uh yeah, there's no uh there's no rolling back on this. We're not getting paid promotion, nothing like that. This is just me being a gear whore and being happy about it. You know, like I said at the beginning of the show, I'm definitely I'm I'm all about gear, especially vintage gear, but you know, anything and uh, I just, you know, if you don't know about it yet, that uh, Reverb, you know, Reverb.com, great stuff. You always get great gear up there, good bargains. They put out at long last a thing I've been waiting over a year for now. It's called the Pedal Movie. And it is a history of the uh, entire effects pedal industry, the whole deal. I think it's like about two hours, 22 minutes, something like that. But you can head up to uh, Reverb.com. And uh, there's links up there to go and get yourself either the ability to rent or buy the pedal movie. And, you know, you can get it on Google Play, you can get it on Vudu, and you can also get it on iTunes. Lots of great information, lots of great guests, incredible interviews, really good stuff. So if you're, you know, a gear geek like me... It's definitely something that you can spend a couple of hours really getting into. I actually bought it, but I'm really hoping that they're actually going to come out with a physical copy of it and do something like what Bob does with his uh, his movies and that you got a lot of extras because they obviously have got tons and tons more interview footage with these folks to be able to put in a DVD with a whole crap load of extras as well. So I'm hoping that they do that at some point. But in the meantime, if you're into effects, you just want to find out about you know, the history of effects and what's going on in the industry today, then go up to uh, Reverb.com and you can get links over to find the pedal movie. I mean, I am so into into gear and I, I love reading about it and, and getting it and checking it out and screwing around with it and all that stuff. And I'm actually surprised that sometime back in the midst of time that Aaron from uh, Signal to Noise and myself didn't hook up and do some kind of a spin-off gear podcast. But anyways, for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So, for Richie, myself, and everybody else hanging out here at Focus on Metal, as always, have yourselves a great metal week, and be safe out there. And until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. Uh...
0: So here it's over. Go home.